Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about racism, the NBA, and Cindy Bunch, the author of her new book, Be Kind to Yourself. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good on this October afternoon. My name is Ian Simpkins. <laughs> it's not really October. Someone's That's going to mess somebody up. I shouldn't do that. That's gonna, like, hold on. Did I, did I just get Flight of the Navigator? Do you remember that movie? <laughs> I've never seen Flight of the Navigator. What? Brian. Yeah, I, don't like avoca- I don't like avocados. I've never seen Flight of the Navigator. Let's get or Lord of now. the Rings. You've never read or seen Lord of the Rings, right? And I'm still in ministry. It's a true oh, statement. Boy, not for long. Anyway, uh, real briefly before we dive in here, a couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Not only do we post articles there, there's a, there's a bunch of comments going on over there right now. You can also send us messages if you have ideas for future shows or guests or topics, any of that. You can also find us at Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. I know I say it all the time, but subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole heap. And uh, I have a brief story I want to tackle and then a deeper yep. story. And this first one really is for you, Brian. Um, the NBA is back. You want to talk about that? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's been really fun to watch. It's been really fun to watch games this week. They, uh, the NBA seems to be highly successful with their bubble in Orlando. They've had no COVID cases. And I wondered before game started, like, is it just going to seem like weird to watch them with no fan? It's actually felt really normal. So uh, it's been really fun to watch games, and uh, the the level of play has been good. So, hey, any sports we can take, and now we're kind of as long as these leagues can hold out, which baseball's having their troubles. But now we have lots of sports after having no sports. But really nice to have the NBA back. That's for sure. Do you want to talk about Jonathan Isaac at all, or do you want to save that for another day? That was a, that was a really sad story because uh, Jonathan Isaac was the I believe he's a center power forward for the Orlando Magic. Uh, he was. I think the only African-American player who stood for the national anthem and uh, he gave his reasons. It caused a lot of discussion and debate, but people were very clear on his team and his coach. We fully support him. And uh, unfortunately yesterday he blew out his ACL, which was just really sad to watch um, because he's been having a good season, but it was, you know, the, the two aren't linked together, but it was just ironic that the guy who was in the news last week is the guy who blew out his ACL. But really sad uh, thing. But uh, hopefully, hopefully the injuries don't mount here. Yeah, I hope so. All right. So I want to get into the meat of the segment now. This is an opinion yep. piece, by the way. I feel like I need to say that now uh, <laughs> from Mark Wingfield. And that that's the article out of Baptist News Global. And the headline reads, why we must not look away in the current crisis. There's some comments right now on the uh, Facebook page that maybe we'll get into. But he starts it by saying this. It was a sermon illustration I will never forget. Our pastor told the story of Father Michael Renninger, pastor of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Richmond, Virginia, while a college student on his way home one week and Renninger stopped to visit his grandparents. They lived in the same row house in Philadelphia that he, he had known growing up. His grandfather had a series of strokes that left him paralyzed on one side and unable to talk or swallow. His grandmother determined to take care of him at home, even though he required a feeding tube. On that day, Renninger recalled, he opened the squeaky front door and immediately knew things were not right. The goopy liquid food was splattered all over his grandfather, whose face was red. His grandmother was struggling to care for him when she realized their grandson had entered the house. The college student started to leave, assuming he didn't need to walk into this embarrassing situation. Then he heard his grandmother's stern voice. Don't you dare. Don't you dare leave. Sometimes this is what love looks like. His grandmother taught him an important lesson that day. Love cannot look away 
when life gets messy. Love cannot look away when the room is smelly, when despair is on display, when things are falling apart. Love makes us look, and in looking, we are compelled to act. I'll I'll stop there. I'd love to get your reactions just on an introduction. Man, a powerful sermon illustration there, a powerful story. And it is true, like, you know, um, you can picture walking to the grandparents' house and everything, your memories and, and everything's kind of um, sanitized. And then to have to be there with, to see your grandmother, you know, helping your grandfather and just the messiness of love and commitment, I think. Uh, and the article is going to use that as a powerful jumping off point. But the fact that to, to truly show love, you've got to acknowledge and see and kind of help wade through the messiness of life. Powerful illustration there. So, so what is the uh, what is the pushback you think that we're getting on the Facebook page? I don't know if you've read the comments or not, but I'd love to know what what do you think might be the um, the counter argument to this opinion piece? Well, so the opinion piece is going to go on to say that uh, therefore, if we're going to be loving, we have to see and acknowledge, and not just acknowledge, but like uh, wade into the messy things of our of our day, COVID-19, racism, immigration, all these different things he brings up. Um, and I, I totally get it. I think he is right. I think the pushback, and I haven't looked at the Facebook page, so you could tell me, I think the pushback is going to be uh, that it feels a little one-sided. So mm. you have to be able then to also have the conversations about with the people who have problems with the protesters or who want to push back on um, claims of uh, COVID-19 being a big deal, things you don't agree with. You also the loving thing then is also not to shut those down, but also engage in those conversations. The article feels a little one sided to me. So my guess is that that is the uh, the pushback that's coming. Did I get it right? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair summary. I do like I'm going to read a quote and then I want to read how he ends it. So sort of skipping over really kind of what you just explained that the meat of it that I, I could see how someone might see it as uh, one sided or lopsided. He said, Jesus didn't travel from village to village, putting up courtesy curtains so the entitled didn't have to see the village's problems. That that is like that's a that's a mic drop kind of comment. But I like how he ends it. He says, love is like a grandmother tenderly caring for her incapacitated husband, even when she's not a nurse. Love is like a grandson who doesn't turn back when he sees his grandparents in distress. Love looks. Love doesn't lie. Love tells the truth. Love doesn't hide. Love steps forward. Love doesn't promote self. Love cares for others first. Love doesn't strike out. Love embraces and holds tightly. This is what the call for justice in America is about today, a call for this kind of love. For as philosopher Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. I thought either way, and maybe you can even, if you're someone who disagrees maybe with the one-sidedness of the meat of it, even just the very beginning mm -hmm. and the very end that I read, I think there's enough meat there to at least cause us to give pause, I think, with the swirl of stuff that's happening in the world, don't you think? I totally agree. I think his premise is right. He obviously comes from a certain point of view, but his premise is is spot on. And I think something uh, that uh, there was part of my sermon yesterday, I was talking about how our culture is just uh, has a bit of a bit of an addiction to comfort. And, and that gets mm. at this a little bit, too, where uh, where. We want everything to be sanitized and comfortable. And what that causes us to do is to turn away from the ugly parts or the struggles of our culture or the hard conversations of our culture. And so I think his overall premise is is spot on, in my opinion, like to truly be loving. We've got to be willing to 
have the hard conversations and look at the things that we might make us feel uncomfortable in our in our culture, as opposed to just going, oh, you know, I want to pretend that those don't exist. And so, like you said, the beginning and the end, the premise, I think, is is an important one for us to certainly embrace. Well, and I'd be remiss not to mention this part. He says, in America right now, we are beyond differences of opinion on how best to uh, do important things for the common good. We are down to a wrestling match over what is the decent and moral thing to do, what is the ethical way to live, which I think is interesting. It's a lot of what you know, you've brought this up a number of times that at the beginning of all this, I don't think either of us could have imagined how politicized something like mask wearing could become. But Uh now, I mean, even hop on Facebook for 20 seconds and you'll see that it's not, it's exactly what he's saying. It's not just, Oh, agree to disagree. Like the vitriol on both sides in some cases. Now there's a lot of good in the world, obviously. And we have a whole segment called some good news because there's lots of (laughs) beauty and wonder, but yeah, it's been elevated now to a degree that I think for a lot of people, is like deeply ingrained in their identity. And if my identity is challenged by somebody else, well, then I have to lash out. And I think that's that's creating a, a whole other set of issues that I'm sure we'll talk about later in the week as well. Coming up next, though, Cindy Bunch, who is the associate publisher and director of editorial at InterVarsity Press, is the author of a brand new book, Be Kind to Yourself, that just came out. She's going to stick around for two segments with us coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole heap of places. First is Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. You can send us a message if you have ideas for future shows. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get podcasts. You know the drill with the podcast stuff. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does somehow really help us out. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have for two segments author Cindy Bunch. Welcome to the show for the very first time, friend. Hi, Ian. Thank you. I appreciate that. Glad to be now, here. Now and Oh, so glad to have you. Yeah. Would, would you take a, just a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our Common Good audience? I will. Yes, I am the director of editorial at InterVarsity Press and associate publisher, and I've been there 30 years. Um, So, yes, and I've written some Bible study guides back years, many years ago, but I have just published my first little book called Be Kind to Yourself. Cindy, congratulations. First of all, that book just came out on July 28th. That's got to be uh, a great thrill. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about the book? Uh, if people were to read Be Kind to Yourself, what is the book about? Sure. So it's about the idea of self-compassion. We all know the the verse in scripture that says that we should treat uh, others as as we would treat ourselves. And we often forget the part about how we might treat ourselves then with kindness and compassion. Um, so I think of it as treating ourselves as nicely as we might treat a friend. Um, so, and a lot of that has to do with the self-talk that goes on in our heads, right? So you, you lose your keys and you're kicking yourself and you're saying, I am so stupid. Um, but think about what, you know, what would a friend, uh, let's, let's say, you know, a nice friend, what would a nice friend say to you if you said, I had such a bad day and it started out because I lost my keys. Your friend would not say, well, that was stupid. Hmm. Your friend would say, well, look at all these things that have been going on in your life. You're under a lot of stress. You know, it's no wonder you would lose your keys. And, you know, I'm really sorry you had such a bad day. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what would it look like? 
Yeah. yeah. Someone who's notorious at uh, <laughs> notoriously bad at self-care. Like, what do you think it is that makes us so bad at the as ourselves part of that command? Yeah. Um, some of it can have to do with, uh, I think, our our God image. Um, and so it should be not only thinking of treating ourselves as well as a friend, but as well as we think God might treat us. But mm. then that kind of goes to the thought of, well, what do we think about how God looks at us or, or treats us? Mm. Um, so, so it could be that there's some work to do in our image of God and, and view of, of God's compassion towards us in that. Um, it, it can also be attitudes that I've discovered even, even as I've done interviews of like, well, I have to constantly beat myself up to make myself get something done. Like we have to be really hard on ourselves, you know, be hard task maskers. But we know that in reality, those kinds of attitudes don't sustain like long-term productivity or, or, or any of that. Um, and then I think we also can get confused when you hear a phrase like self-compassion, like maybe it sounds like, being soft on sin or, or something like that. Um, but I, I think that some of the practices that I, that I'm encouraging in the book can actually help us get in touch with our sin, get clear about it, confess it, and then move on from it mm-hmm. so that, you know, we can continue to grow. If we don't acknowledge the sin and let it go, then we're just going to kind of say stuck. Uh, and Yeah. So, yeah, Cindy, I'm curious. Uh, I always love to ask authors this question. What, uh, why this topic? Why did you decide to spend all this time and write a book on this topic? Yeah. I, well, it started for me uh, when I was reading a book that I was editing um, called What Does Your Soul Love by Jem and Alan Fadling. And I was in work mode. And so usually when I'm in work mode and writing a report for an author, I'm not thinking about my own spiritual life too much. I'm thinking about the shape of the book and things like that. But this phrase just really struck me that Jem wrote and it was, um, what, what bugs you Hmm. and, and that we should think about what bugs us in a, in a way of, um, uh, reflecting and, and connecting with, with God. And so I kind of held on to that and thought about it. And it, it, it was, it's what she was unfolding was something like the, the practice of the examine of St. Ignatius, which is that each day we should review two questions. What are our points of desolation, which is where am I far from God? And what are our points of consolation? Where did I feel near to God? Hmm. So I took that phrase that struck me so much. Uh, it, it's actually notice when when you are bugged is what she said, hmm. and I changed it to a question of what is what's bugging me, and and that's where I notice the things in the ordinary day that are frustrating me, the things that are pulling me away from God, the things that have me like in a negative mental loop of self talk, hmm. hmm. and um, I write those down. And then I turn to what brings me joy, which is my version of consolation. And the joy I'm talking about are the moments when we feel like God's near, when, when we feel the gifts of and recognize God's good gifts of just being in the world, of nature, of friends, of good mm-hmm. food, um, of kindness. Um, and, uh, and I do that actually not at night. 
as the original practice was, but in the morning, because I feel mm. more clear to do it then. Sometimes if when I would try it at night, I would think of all the bad things I did and then I would feel mm -hmm. bad <laughs> and then I wouldn't be sleepy. So, right. <laughs> so I do it in the morning instead and that works just better for me. Um, and, um, and what I find is that, you know, so I'm letting go of the things that are bothering me so that I can be more open to the things that bring me joy, which is oh, really opening space for God, for God's presence, for me to feel the spirit near me hmm. during the day. You know, the thing I love about yeah. that so much is that we actually had a segment on the show that we haven't done in a while called Grind mm. My Gears. And there was. Uh -huh. <laughs> there, there's another phrase. Right, right. There's no like <laughs> sacred significance behind that at all. It was like, let's play for a segment. And what you've done is create something that all of us do naturally anyway and like elevate it to like, no, like use that in a helpful way. Why do you think we get so trapped in like negative self talk? Because I don't think that's like an introvert extrovert thing. I don't think it's an Enneagram thing. I think we all deal with that at some level. Like what, what is it that you think keeps us stuck in that rut? Yeah. Yeah. I think most people have, I call it, you know, talk about the inner critic. I think most people do have that inner critic. Um, and I think it, it can come from different things, probably for different people. It's the, the people in our past. Sometimes it, it could be a message we got from, mm -hmm. from someone in our childhood or, or something like that. It, it can be, again, it could be an image of God thing. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's so, some sort of a human tendency. You know how we remember the negative things. Hmm. Like if, if you give me a bad review for my book, I'm going to remember that <laughs> so much better than I'm going to remember all the good reviews or all the nice things right. that you said about my book. Um, and, and why, why is that? I, I don't know, but I think it's something that most of us have to work at overcoming, uh, I, yeah. I remember hearing Richard Rohr say that when it when it comes to how our brains function with negativity, it's like Velcro with positivity. It's like Teflon that. Like, oh, wow. Negativity, yeah. Negativity just like latches on and like to behold something beautiful or wonderful or kind requires like a lot of effort, which leads me perfectly to what's going to come up in the next segment, because now I want to ask you about your book, particularly in light of a pandemic, which you could not have planned for. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think I think that your subject matter has some really interesting implications for what we're dealing with right now. So that's coming up next with Cindy Bunch here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you want to subscribe, rate, and review, that helps us and the show a whole bunch. Speaking of bunch, we are joined uh, segment two here. <laughs> so good. That's, that was not even intentional. My brain just goes there. I can't help it. Uh, she's not only the associate publisher and director of editorial at InterVarsity Press, but she also just wrote a brand new book called Be Kind to Yourself. And you can Get that wherever books are sold, but I encourage you to go to ivpress.com to get it there. And uh, there's just no way you could have known that your book would come out in the middle of like a global pandemic. I'd be really curious to know, one, how, how has that been for you? And two, what are some ways that your book speaks really specifically to like this very odd cultural moment we're in? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, so if only I had known, I'm sure I could have done something useful with that information, like made masks or something. <laughs> um, 
it, you know, it, it was an interesting time for publishing when it when it all began because Amazon wasn't shipping books for a while. Um, but mm-hmm. we've recovered very nicely on that front. Uh, but I think that was really for me. Some of the hardest moments were were when mm-hmm. it seems like you know seemed like book sales were just at a stoppage. Right. Um, but uh, things are going very nicely. Um, I I have really particularly enjoyed nature in this pandemic. I've been walking every day, just to you know get out of the house. And for a while there, there was virtually nothing else to do except take a walk. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just watching birds and animals and and taking a lot more notice of seasons and changes than than I might have and and I have gotten a lot of enjoyment from that um and that that actually does connect somewhat to the to the book to the idea we were talking about earlier of write down each day both the things that frustrate you and the things that give you joy and these joys so often are these little things um of you know watching a a bird build a nest or um you know what what we made for dinner my husband and i or or these kinds of things so it's the the small noticing these small ordinary things um can often build that sort of connection to the ordinary gifts that God gives us in, in every day. And, and I think that's, we see a lot of that, even in the culture, we see that happening, people kind of slowing down and, and appreciating uh, some, some of life, uh, the time with, with family and, and now, you know, maybe limited time with friends uh, as well uh, that can, that can happen into your book, uh, Be Kind to Yourself, which just, just came out on July 28th here. Uh, it says it's filled with spiritual practices and creative exercises. I'm, I'm curious, one or two of those spiritual practices or creative exercises that might be helpful for people. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things uh, that, that I suggest uh, is to uh, make a list. And I'm actually was inspired by Marilyn McIntyre, uh, who has a mm-hmm. book called Make Make a List, and she mm-hmm. takes list list making and makes it into a spiritual practice. Wow. And the idea is really you're brainstorming. So you you, you make a, a list under a certain heading, and you just start multiplying ideas, and it kind of kind of open up the brain. And if you do that in a sort of spiritual way in in God's presence, uh, it, it can be a, a way to open up some insight. So I would encourage people to try making a list of ways they can be kind to themselves mm. or um, reasons God wants them to be kind to themselves uh, and, and do it, you know, give yourself some space. Don't just write down two or three things, you know, try to write down maybe 20 things and and see what comes as, as you keep writing. So um, that's, that's been a fun practice for me to use this idea of list making as a, as a spiritual practice. Um, and then another one, um, going back to the to the the inner critic that that we talked about earlier, is is a way of addressing the negative mental thoughts that come. Hmm. Is to have prepared for yourself a sort of weapon. <laughs> that is, um, make make yourself a little kind of prayer or reflection card um, with maybe a key verse that you find comfort in. And and then a, a message um, to yourself. So you you could write down um, 
the the Lord leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul from the 23rd Psalm on one side. And then on the other side, you could say to yourself, God wants you to rest. Hmm. So give yourself a message that you need to hear. Keep it nearby um, and um, be prepared to offer yourself comfort and, and assurance uh, with something like that. So another one, uh, you know, is Isaiah 58, 8, the Lord shall be your rear guard. Um, and you could say something like, God is with you in this, hmm. you know, whatever it is. Um, so that's, that's another, that's another practice that has I been helpful. I, what I've noticed uh, in those two responses is how, actionable they are like someone you don't need mm. a doctorate to make those happen <laughs> like in certain evangelical circles things like spiritual formation or or meditation they, they can almost feel like like naughty words or like oh that's mm. that's me. I, I don't know that i have the qualifications to oh lectio divina that feels really scholarly. Yes. like no, no no it's that's for for all of us to do what, what do you what do you think are some of the biggest hurdles for like helping people even better understand that a book like yours is really needed right now. Like how do you, how do you overcome some of the the stigmas, I guess, of, of some of what people mm -hmm. might assume about, Oh, one of those books. Well, that, that is a, a good one. Uh, I, I do try to give lots of little easy practices to try and hopefully for, for lots of different kinds of people, um, things that are maybe more uh, visual or artistically oriented and, um, as well as as looking at scripture and 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 those kinds of things, um, I confess in the book I am not very good at centering prayer. I had a spiritual director who was very wise and encouraged me to try it, and so I did and I do. But what <laughs> I my brain does, does a lot of wandering during centering <laughs> prayer, which is when you you know, just try to be quiet for a period of right. time and focus. And, um, so instead I like doodling prayer, um, and doodling it. prayer is my, is an adaptation from, from Sybil Macbeth who, who did, uh, praying in color and, and she advises you write as you praying, you write what you're praying about. Just make little notes and make little drawings around it if you want. Hmm. And so that you're, so you're essentially coloring and making notations as you pray. You could, you could make notes about image, you know, pictures of God that you love, like w w names for God or names for Christ. Or you could just, as you're praying through a prayer list for people, you could note their names and, and, sh and you could, just draw around it. So anyway, it's a, it's a way of like opening yourself to the idea like, yeah, my brain's going to wander, but I'm still keeping it all centered in God as I do this. Yeah. Cindy, with like the last minute we have left, yeah. again, we're talking about your book, Be Kind to Yourself, which just, which just came out a couple of week or two ago. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, as you were writing this book or, or as it's now out, who is kind of your target audience? Who would be that best person to go, to go and get this book? I would, I think it can reach a broad variety of people. I've had some friends trying it out. Um, it, it definitely seems to appeal slightly more to women. Um, and maybe because it's got some of these artistic kind of exercises in it. Um, but, uh, certainly some men have enjoyed it as well. Um, and some variety of, of ages. Uh, I, 
think you could give it to somebody that's fairly new to spiritual practice, though. I think it would mm-hmm. be a good entryway for somebody that, like you said, maybe is intimidated by other books that right. feel t- like too hard to do or something. Yeah, that's great. That other voice you're hearing is Cindy Bunch. She's the associate publisher and director of editorial at InterVarsity Press and the author of the brand new book, Be Kind to Yourself, available wherever books are sold. Cindy, seriously, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here on this uncharacteristically cool August day. If this is if this is how the rest of August is going to be, I'll be just fine with that, by the way. I want to I'm going to have like a bonfire tonight. This is like almost almost hot cider weather. Are you a hot cider fan? Yes. Yes. Just want to make sure. I mean, so far, avocados, Lord of the Rings. I don't remember. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator. Oh, you got to watch that movie. I'm sure. I'm sure it doesn't hold up. Anyway, uh, real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get podcasts. If you're thinking, hey, I got 90 seconds to kill. Why don't you uh, subscribe to it, rate it, and leave a little review. Even just a thumbs up would help us out a whole ton. All that activity is uh, is super, super helpful. I appreciate that very much. Speaking of the Facebook page, this one has some comments as well. But uh, it's an article out of NBCNews.com, and it says racism among white Christians is higher than among the non-religious. And that's no coincidence. Uh, I imagine some people are already maybe feeling tense about this article. I totally understand. Brian Fromm and I will regularly talk about articles that we don't necessarily agree with just to get that out there. But uh, let's take a dive into it a little bit and see what's going on. What's happening, Brian? Yeah. And you always like to point out when it's an opinion piece. (laughs) So here we go. Uh, Over the last several weeks, the United States has engaged in a long overdue reckoning with the racist symbols of the past, tearing down monuments to figures complicit in slavery and removing Confederate flags from public displays. But little scrutiny has been given to the cultural institutions that legitimize the worldview behind these symbols. Uh, It says white Christian churches. A close read of history reveals that we white Christians have not just been complacent or complicit. Rather, as the nation's dominant cultural power, we have constructed and sustained a project of perpetrating. Why can I say that word? Perpetrating white supremacy that has framed. Perpetuating, that's the word. (laughs) White supremacy that has framed the entire American story. The legacy of this unholy union still lives in the DNA of white Christianity today, and not just among white evangelical Protestants in the South, but also among white mainline Protestants in the Midwest and white Catholics in the Northeast. For more than two decades, this author writes, I've studied the attitudes of religiously affiliated Americans across the country, and year over year, in question after question, in public opinion polls, a clear pattern has emerged. Uh, White Christians are consistently more likely than whites who are religiously unaffiliated to deny the existence of structural racism. For example, uh, surveys conducted in 2018 found that white Christians, including evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics, are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans. And white Christians are about 30 percentage points more likely to say monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. 
White Christians are also about 20% points more likely to disagree with this statement. This statement being generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class. And these trends generally persist even in the wake of recent protests for racial justice. So we'll stop there. Uh, that's a lot there, ma'am. That is a lot. It's, it's researched and, uh, I don't have a lot of great answers to it. So when you read that, what, what, uh, what, what comes to mind? Why is this the case? Do you think this is actually the case? Well, let me let me go to our comments first, because we have, we have a couple of good comments over there on the Facebook mm-hmm. page. Liam said bigotry should have no place in the fellowship of believers. It should be anathema to anyone who claims the gospels as a credo. Uh, David Cook, who's who's commented a, a good deal on a lot, a lot of these, he says, how are they defining racism? That is the answer we need first. Many things they define as racism are borderline at best. While this might be true from experience, I doubt it. So that's uh, sort of his perspective there. Michael says, it's been like this for a long time. Paul was a racist at first. Peter was racist until his dream. And then Marissa simply said, this is not surprising. So those are uh, comments that kind of run the gamut a little bit there. Again, I'd be curious, like, have you experienced this like in your own circles? This has been something that you and I have shared a number of times over the course of this show's history is that we want to be careful not to let our experience be the only driving factor because sometimes... You know, my world is not the world. And so sometimes our defensiveness can say, well, I don't feel that way. And I've, I've never experienced that. I've never even seen that. Therefore, this can't be true or I reject it entirely. Like, do you do you find yourself? Can, can you think of any instances? Maybe not specifically, but does any of this resonate with you overall? Or are you feeling like, I don't I don't I don't see any of this in my world? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about that as I was reading uh, in prep for this. And I think. Uh, I don't see this. I have not seen this in my life in like kind of a large scale kind of, a you know, wow, it's kind of off the charts, the general DNA. Now, how, were there people in my life and are there currently people in my life and even in my church uh, who this might be describing? Well, sure. Uh, but I would say more that likely than not, the vast majority of people that I tend to know, at least I hope, I, I think I know them well, <laughs> this mm-hmm. doesn't. Uh, this doesn't um, equate to how I think they would answer these questions. Um, and that's why I had a hard time with this. Like I, my first thought was, although they answered this in this article, my first thought was, you know, the Bible belts in the South. And so maybe there's a different kind of uh, historical answers that come out of the South. I've never lived in the South, right. uh, but you know, they kind of said that's not the case. That was where my first thought was, but no, to answer your question, are there individuals that come to mind in my churches growing up or my current church who this would fit? Sure, but not in any kind of large scale. Uh, and that's why this article, I kind of read it and I was like, really? Like, I don't, I don't, it's not like you said, our own anecdotes aren't necessarily rule, uh, but I go, ah, it's not really how it's been for me. But that's why I found yeah. this article really kind of interesting and, and unsettling, I guess. Well, let me let me read a little more from it. it says consider the cultural context in which American Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, was born. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as Protestant churches were springing up in the newly settled territories after Native American populations were forcibly removed, it was common practice observed, for example, at the Baptist church that was the, oh boy, what is that word? Progenitor of my parents' churches in Macomb, Georgia, yeah. for slaveholding whites to take enslaved people to church with them. The practice had that white sat in the front while enslaved blacks sat in the back or in specifically constructed galleries above. In late 18th century Maryland, one-fifth of those included in a Catholic census were enslaved people owned by white Catholics or white Catholic institutions. 
And as late as the 1940s, urban Catholic parishes in major cities such as New York still required black members to sit in the back pews and approach the altar last to receive the bread and wine of the Eucharist. Moreover, the content of what was preached confirmed that white supremacy was part of the Christian worldview. Sermons, by necessity, tended to be light on the themes of freedom and liberation in Exodus, for example, and heavy on the mandates of obedience and being content in one's social station from the New Testament writings of Paul. In these seedbeds of American Christianity and a, oh boy, a, a prior, is, that a, is that a spelling error or is that actually the word prior? Prior commitment to white supremacy shaped what could be practiced. A slave master could not share a common cup of Christian fellowship with his slaves and preached white dominance and black subservience were expressions of God's ideal for the organization of human societies. Such early distortions influenced how white Christians came to embody and understand their faith and determine what was handed down from one generation to the next. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this. As monuments to white supremacy are falling all across America, a great cloud of witnesses is gathering. Our fellow African-American citizens and indeed the entire country are waiting to see whether we white Christians can finally find the humility and courage and love to face the truth about our long relationship with white supremacy and to dismantle the Christian worldview we built to justify it. I, I would love to know, Brian, given what you sort of shared briefly, we have just a couple of sec- uh, seconds left. How, how does that final paragraph as sort of like a like a challenge hit you? Yeah, it, it hits me as immediately I get defensive. You know, anytime yeah. I hear stuff like that, I'm like, again, that's not how I feel. That's not necessarily what I've experienced, but maybe that's the problem. And so I do think all that's going on culturally right now, even if this type of article makes you defensive, like if I'm going to be honest, it makes me, it's still worth going, all right, I, I should think through this. Where are my blind spots? Maybe there's things I need to be reading. Maybe maybe it's not that I haven't experienced this, but I've got blind spots. And so I do think even if it makes us defensive, uh, it's worth uh, you not don't let that defensiveness cause you to go, then this is just garbage, but instead go, okay, I'm going to think through this. Let me wrestle with what he said uh, and see where we come out on the other side. That's helpful, man. I appreciate that. With that, the first hour is in the books. Coming up in the second hour, we have a very special guest, and we're also going to talk about hygiene theater. That and more is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about hygiene theater, and then a buddy of mine who's a police officer in the South is going to join us for two segments. And you're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you're thinking, wait a minute, back to The Common Good. Yes, that's right. We just wrapped up hour one. If you're just joining us live on the radio right now, you can go back and listen to the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, even text to a friend, all that helps us out a whole ton. You can also find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We not only post articles there, we also can take messages if you have ideas for future shows or thoughts on previous shows, any traction, any activity, all that does really help us out a whole ton. And just to say it again, we're super grateful for those of you who have engaged in some way, shape, or form. That really does mean a lot. We want this platform to serve you all well, to be a space for dialogue, conversation, for us to disagree, but to disagree well. And uh, we've really enjoyed all the conversations that we've had in the past. I, I want to talk about this phrase, Brian. It's called hygiene theater. And uh, the article out of The Atlantic simply says this, hygiene theater 
is a huge waste of time. People are power scrubbing their way to a false sense of security. What is going on here? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting article. It begins this way. Scientists still don't have a perfect grip on COVID-19. They don't know where it exactly came from, how exactly to treat it, or how long immunity lasts. But in the past few months, scientists have converged on a theory of how this disease travels via air. Uh, the disease typically spreads among people through large droplets expelled in sneezes and coughs or through smaller uh, aerosolized droplets as from conversations during which saliva spray can linger in the air. Surface transmission, so from touching doorknobs, mail, food delivery packages, and subway poles, seems quite rare. Uh, parenthetically, it says quite rare isn't the same as impossible. The scientists I spoke with constantly repeated the phrase, people should still wash their hands. Uh, goes on to say the difference may be a simple matter of time. In the hours that can elapse between, say, person one coughing on her hand and using it to push open a door and person two touching the same door and rubbing his eye, the virus particles from the initial cough may have sufficiently uh, deteriorated. The fact that surface areas or fomites in medical jargon are less likely to convey the virus might seem counterintuitive to people who have internalized certain notions of grimy germs or who read many news articles in March about the danger of COVID-19 contaminated food. Backing up those scary stories were several U.S. studies that found that COVID-19 particles could survive on surfaces for many hours uh, and many days. Uh, but in a July article in the medical journal The Lancelot, Goldman excoriated those conclusions. All those studies that made COVID-19 seem likely to live for days on metal and paper bags were based on unrealistically strong concentrations of the virus. As he explained, as many as 100 people would need to sneeze on the same area of a table to mimic some of their experimental conditions. The studies, quote, stack the deck to get a result that bears uh, no resemblance in the real world. As a thousand internet commentators know by heart, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, but it goes on to say how it's really unlikely uh, to be transmitted on surfaces. And so I would stop there and just go, uh, Ian, that's something we heard from early on, like, you know, doorknobs, uh, tabletops. We were all wiping down our uh, our deliveries right from Amazon as they came. Uh, but it has really changed. Does this surprise you? Or are you kind of uh, well versed in the fact that maybe it's not nearly as transmittable that way as we were first led to believe? Well, I, I don't want to self-proclaim as well-versed, but yeah, this this article doesn't surprise me. I think it's pretty well-written. I know that some people will be less inclined to buy it simply based on the source, which I guess is a bummer, but I want to read what Isaiah said on our Facebook page. He said, uh, they said early on and continue to say that it was an airborne virus. I never got why we were told and at work had to clean so much more than normal. Yeah, it is a false sense of security, but I do think it helps people cope too, which is really what I want to talk about. We could debate the science and even like the science should probably be in air quotes at this point because it feels like right. there's a, a dozen different scientists saying completely opposing things. So that can sometimes be overwhelming to say the least. But let's just presume that this article is right. Let's just let's just operate under that premise. Is there something to be said about the theater of it all, and let's just assume again that it is just theater. Is there something to be said, maybe especially from a Christian perspective, if we find out, yep, all this theater didn't actually have any like biological significance, but it did have emotional significance. It lowered people's anxiety, you know, this percentage point, or 
it helped create a a more comfortable sense of like communal gather or whatever, whatever it is. It, is there in your mind any merit to doing something, even if it is just the theater of it, if it actually has some kind of interpersonal benefit? I think so. I think as long as though people know, you know that uh, what's theater and what's not. And, that, and that's where this becomes difficult because a lot of us, right, we've been cleaning excessively because we think that's how we're going to keep safe from COVID. Uh, and, uh, but, but I do think if, if it in some ways, like you said, reduces anxiety or causes us to do other things, like, you know, I'm going to excessively wash my hands and I'm going to wear a mask, these types of things, it raises the bar for security overall. I think it's, it's fine. Uh, I don't see a problem with it. What about you? Do you have any problem or see any problems with it? No, I, I would almost go the other way. I, I was, uh, I'm a little... Yeah, I was not anticipating that response from you. I, I, I was going to go so far as to say, I think you could make the case that it's almost the more Christian thing to do to say, listen, I think I have fairly good evidence that this isn't actually making a difference. But I clearly see that you are anxious without it or uh, I that, see where you're going. Or that yep. when I do this, you seem to feel a greater sense of comfort and ease even being in this space because of my value for you and this relationship, I'm going to do the thing that I don't actually know if it's making all that much of a difference, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know what I mean? Oh, I get that. I, I was thinking it more for <laughs> more on a personal level, like, uh, but yeah, especially if it is reducing the anxiety of other people, I think that is, we keep using the phrase, love your neighbor. That is a great way uh, to love your neighbor. You threw out this phrase, hygiene theater. Let me just read the paragraph where it describes that. It says, COVID-19 has reawakened America's spirit of misdirected anxiety, inspiring businesses and families to uh, obsess over risk reduction rituals that make us feel safer, but don't actually do much to reduce risk, even as more dangerous activities are still allowed. This is hygiene theater. So uh, that's where that phrase comes from. Uh, I do think uh, again, one of the real struggles we've had, because you even mentioned it earlier in this conversation, is kind of the air quotes of science, because there's lots of um, disagreements going on. And, and I, what I wouldn't want to see is somebody going, well, I'm, I'm going to just wash my hands or, you know, wipe down the surfaces and therefore not wear a mask. You know, that they're, they're not all of these are equal uh, that make us feel safer. And so you do want to be able to trust the scientists a little bit that says, hey, here's the most important thing to be doing. Uh, here's this. And hey, there's nothing wrong with wiping down surfaces or uh, or doorknobs. Uh, and then I think you're right. Like If that's going to help my neighbor feel better, my family member, the stranger around me, then yeah, I think it, it is, uh, like you said, a good thing for us to be doing. Well, and and I, I really, this is not a perfect illustration, and I don't at all want to imply that like patronizing is helpful. But I was thinking about even just earlier today, both my boys are at the stage where if they like slightly you know, bump their hand or, you know, stub their toe, whatever they instantly want, you know, mom or dad to kiss it. And the moment they do, what happens? They're like, Oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine now. Like, you know, yeah. there's something, even though in my head, I'm like, the, the kiss isn't actually doing anything, at least biologically, but it's, it's showing some affection for them. Yeah. And in their mind, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to continue playing now. And, and again, please hear me. I'm not, that's not a one-to-one ratio. They're like, Hey, do these things because people who are scared are like little kids. That's not, in the slightest what I'm saying. I just wonder sometimes if it can be at times the loving thing to do, even if you're like, I don't even know that it's all that scientifically helpful, but if it is, if it conveys 
some concern or love or affection for you, this person in this other space, may, maybe that's still worth doing, right? Maybe, maybe that's not that much different from Jesus saying, man, if you're forced to go one mile, walk two, right? Mm-hmm. If you're being sued yeah. for this, give them both. Like it's just, I don't know. I just wonder if maybe there isn't a, a little bit of opportunity for Christians to go above and beyond, even if, even if they don't actually, you know, aren't required by law to do so. I think, I think that might be interesting. Coming up next, a buddy of mine from college, actually, who's a police officer in the South, is going to share with us a couple of stories, some experience about what it's like to be a police officer right now. And that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things briefly. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We not only post all of our articles there, you can also send us a message. If you have any suggestions for future shows or thoughts on previous shows, you can do all of that there. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, just kidding. I mention it every day. You can uh, subscribe, rate, and review there, and all of that does really help us out a whole lot. And I am thrilled to have a buddy of mine who's going to join us for two segments. His name is Kevin. He's a police officer in a metropolitan area in the South. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it, Ian. It's good to hear from you. Likewise, man. Why, why don't you take just a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so I've been a police officer for about four years now down in the south uh, in Georgia. And uh, I'm actually, like I said, we're old buddies. We went to school together up there in Illinois, spent about 10 years in the Pacific Northwest, and now I'm down here. So my wife and I like to joke that next time we move, we're moving to New England to really just do a full circle of the country. (laughs) That's funny. Kevin, uh, really grateful for you joining us. I'm just wondering kind of broadly – uh, how has this time been for you as a police officer? Yeah. So specifically to me, I have to say it's been pretty emotionally exhausting, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing, and if I if I can, I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a story of an yeah. incident I had recently. Yeah. Uh, it was actually a, uh, a black man, middle-aged. Uh, approached me at a gas station and we just started having a short conversation. You could tell he wanted to talk to me a bit. Uh, his teenage son was in the vehicle and just sitting there. And um, he was talking to me about how he used to be involved in gangs, has many interactions with the police in his past. And he just wanted to express his gratitude actually for what I do every day. And he was saying, man, I don't know how you do it every day, but I appreciate mm-hmm. it. And it meant a lot coming from him, of course, you know, and, and we had a good connection. But then what he said next really impacted me a lot. Um, and, and this is something that, that pretty, weighs pretty heavy on me. He said, you guys shouldn't be treated the way you are. You shouldn't have to worry about getting ambushed or attacked. And he said, I mean, as a black man, I'm used to it. And that mm-hmm. right there, you know, after he said that, I just, I can't remember what was said next because that, as a black man, I'm used to it. You know, that just broke my heart because the question is, should he be? Right, right. So in, in your experience, Kevin, how how do you navigate then conversations like that? Because you, you and I are real life friends. So we've had private conversations about the ins and outs mm-hmm. and some struggles and stuff that I know that weighs on you and probably weighs on a lot of people in your line of work, but how, how do you navigate through that? Like, it feels like the unrest we're experiencing right now is 
maybe higher than I can recall in my lifetime. Like, how, what's it been like on your end trying to find a way forward in the midst of all of this? Right. I mean, I think that it has to be Jesus, honestly. I, I have yeah. to, because there's been a lot of times, I mean, that I've just been like, yeah, I'm done. I don't really want to be a part of this anymore. Um, I wanted to be a police officer to, you know, be a force of good in the country, to uh, help enforce the law, help be a respectful officer to people of all races, all colors, all economic classes. But you don't, you know, when you get in this role, there are things that you didn't really sign up for that you're having to deal with, which is this right now. And I think mm -hmm. that's why that story of that, that African-American gentleman really struck me is because it made me realize this is a role I chose, but mm -hmm. that that's who he is, you know, mm -hmm. and that he's having to deal with that day in and day out. And it both, it, it broke my heart, but it also inspired me to be like, okay, I know that Jesus has saved me, has, you know, given me a passion for um, justice, for equality, all those things. And there are a lot of people like me out here in the country, whether it be in law enforcement, politics, whatever it is, and we're all taking that different role that God has given us. But mm -hmm. we need to to do it with, with vigor, with passion, with um, conviction. Um, so, because, you know, what I... I didn't say this to the guy, but what I wish I had said is that, no, he shouldn't be used to it as a black man. You know, that's right. not okay that he's created in the image of God. And regardless of his relationship with Jesus, he's still worthy of respect and equal treatment. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, Jesus, Ephesians 2.14, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And hmm. I think we as Christians need to be little Christ and, creatively, prophetically ask ourselves what in our community, what in our city, what in our nation is building those, quote, you know, dividing walls of hostility. And how do we as Christians break down those walls to say, you know, this, this wall that's here is a microcosm of what Jesus has done for us, that he's broken down this huge wall of hostility between us and God. And he broke that down even when we didn't ask for it. Mm -hmm. So how do we individually, both in systemic ways and personal ways, you know, look at what walls maybe is God bringing to my heart that I could work at breaking down. Yeah, that's good. Kevin, I'm curious if within your department is the, is the stress level higher, but also I'm curious, are there like different conversations going on now amongst police officers in the last couple of months that maybe weren't going on before? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the stress level is higher. Uh, we are in a county uh, where the district attorney is is pretty blatantly anti-police, I would say. Mm -hmm. And that's just my opinion, but it, it's yeah. something that's shared with other officers as well. Um, so that's an additional stress of, well, shoot, I, you know, I always knew that I could lose my life, but now could I be arrested? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and there's, I mean, the George Floyd thing, there's other instances as well where those officers need to be arrested and they need to be charged, you know, mm -hmm. but there are other things where it's like, I don't agree that that officer needed to be arrested or charged, but yet there it is. And, and that's something I think a lot of officers were like, okay, well, I, I didn't expect that to be part of the job. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of conversation of, do I still want to do this? You know, a lot of people just not really wanting to <clears throat> maybe be as proactive as they were in the past. 
Um, and a lot of, you know, law enforcement, we are more conservative, typically people who like, um, kind of continuing with tradition, if you will, mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly. And so when there's a lot of change, it, 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 I think a lot of people are having a hard time understanding why, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how have you been navigating that change? I think that's a really interesting point. Well, you know, you know me, <laughs> I mean, we, <laughs> I have a, a, a different viewpoint, I think, that I would say that I'm more in the minority as far as a law, in, in law enforcement that, um, you know, and this is partly why I wanted to, like, even have the question of do I want my first name or how much anonymity do I want in this, in this interview here. But because right, right. the, the real, the reality is for me, you know, I joined law enforcement because Black Lives Matter. You know, I, mm -hmm. I lived in a low income area in Tacoma, Washington, where we would do barbecues with a lot of poor kids, most of them black, not all of them. Um, and then I'd see 50 kids and, and, you know, no parents and they're just, we're, we're having burgers together. We're having a great time. We're playing soccer or football or whatever. And you don't see a lot of the parents cause they don't want to be around. And then you see, you know, at the picnic table nearby, there's some Crips, um, mm. you know, basically just five years older than these kids, um, right. hanging out, doing whatever. And it's like, man, I want to, I want to reach all those kids. And, and I felt like my background, it, it lended itself towards law enforcement. I thought obviously there's communities of all races, of all economic classes need to be reached by a, a myriad of people in different roles mm. and all that. But I thought, you know, I think this is, what God is calling me into in my specific role. And that's so helpful. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is my friend, Kevin, he's a police officer in the metropolitan South and he's sticking around with us for one more segment. We're going to ask a little bit more about some of his background in policing and how he's sort of navigating this current cultural climate that's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Joining us for a second segment is a buddy of mine that I've known for almost two decades, which is bonkers to say out loud. I don't feel like I'm quite that old, but I guess I am. He's a police officer in a metropolitan area in the South and has had... I think a really wonderful, interesting kind of diverse life. And you've lived in a bunch of different places doing a bunch of different things. You're currently a police officer, but you bring with it both your Christian identity and decades of experience and things that you've seen. And one of the things that I've been really excited to talk to you a little bit about is how, how do you navigate the tension between black lives matter and blue lives matter? Sure. Uh, listening, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I'm actually not really on Facebook anymore for one reason. I'm not anti-Facebook, but <laughs> I found myself, especially once um, all the protests started happening, um, you know, we had a chief. Actually, that's a good example. So the Atlanta police chief um, or, or former, she, she since stepped down. Um, the day that protests started happening in Atlanta, she went around, I think it was around like 3 to 5 p.m., down to where the protests were happening. And keep in mind, there had already been some vandalism that had happened um, by some of the protesters over at the CNN building. And she went 
with some of her command staff in their normal admin clothes. So they weren't in riot gear. They'd, some of them had bulletproof vests on, some of them didn't, and just went in the middle of the crowd and started listening to people. Wow. And I remember, I think it was CNN or someone else covering it saying, we have never seen something like this before. Wow. And I think it really impacted people. Now, it broke my heart because rioting started that night and it just, you know, went on for a while. But as a police chief, that that to me is really commendable that, okay, I have a job to do, but I understand that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of legitimate hurt going on. And unfortunately, that is getting mixed up with some of the rioting and all that, because I, you know, look at what's going on in Portland. You know, I'm, I'm from the Northwest. Like when I see a lot of those people there, I'm like, <clears throat> those people are anarchists. <laughs> you know, they're mm-hmm. not they're not mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, some of them may be mixed, but a lot of them, when I mm-hmm. see them and the people that I knew out there, I think they're just anarchists trying to use what's going on for their own agenda, which I think is is hijacking it in a lot of way. But, mm-hmm. you know, I talked to my friends in the South here. They'd have, they've never even met an anarchist, let alone let alone know like what their goal would be or what's going on there or anything. So it's just, you know, all of this is way more nuanced than we think, you know? And when I talk to someone who says blue lives matter and and we, and I'm in a a more affluent white suburban area where I police. And there are a lot of people that say, man, I just, I just don't get it. Like they're just a bunch of disrespectful people and all that. And, and so then you listen and then, as a police officer to say, well, yeah, but, you know, look at that 20 something year old black man who, since he was in high school, has been hearing about police brutality, starting with Ferguson, or, Mm. you know, you can even go back to Rodney King in in LA in the nineties when that, you know, kind of opened up some stuff. So if that's all he's been learning and he's only been learning it from one perspective, don't Mm. you think he would have a right to feel that way the same way you who have always been living, you know, your certain lifestyle might not under, not understand what it means to have been a black man or a black female, mm-hmm. you know, living in a poor area where they've been oppressed. Right, right. Kevin, I'm curious, just uh, as a Christ follower, how does your faith in Jesus, how does that uh, play itself out in, in how you are a police officer? How does How does your Christianity affect how you are as a police officer? Yeah, I think it really comes into, um, you know, and and I I guess I'll stop real quick because I know some people may think like, well, it's not just personal. It's also systemic. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of systemic issues that are going and I I do understand that. Um, But I would say as a police officer, when I look at, you know, what systemically is going on, I honestly, it's a question mark that comes up, you know, like I'm not saying it's not there, but I don't see, I can't point to many laws that are that are obviously racist, you know, that I might be enforcing. So for me, it becomes a lot more to, and again, I'm not saying that's not there. It's just, maybe I'm ignorant to it. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure, but more than it goes into everybody that I interact with. Um, I have to treat them with respect and I, you know, I'm better and worse at it at certain points. I mean, (laughs) I remember recently there's one guy, he committed a crime. And then we bring him to the station while we're, while getting a warrant and he starts complaining that his leg hurts and something you don't see on, on the, on the news is that, you know, pretty much everybody you arrest is going to be complaining about something. And that's Mm -hmm. why it's like, 
you know, that's something you don't hear. And I can see why sometimes people, you know, you see officers and they seem to be mistreating someone. It's like, well, sometimes it is. And sometimes it's, you know, they've heard it so much, they almost get desensitized to it, if that makes sense. And that happened to me with this guy. I'm like, this guy's just whining. He just, you know, he's a punk, all this stuff or the thoughts that come into my head. And then it did go to, no, like this is, again, it's a guy created in the image of God, you know? So, I mean, I even, I, you know, he's complaining and I'm like, yeah, just get over it, you know? And I shut the door and I'm like, that's not right, you know? Mm-hmm. And and the embarrassment I felt, you know, of like, well, I shouldn't have treated this guy right. And it is recorded, but that's not what influenced me. It just led to more embarrassment of like, oh, great, you know? like So I swallowed my pride and then went back in and I'm like, look, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't like it because he started yelling at me. I apologize for that, but you can't, you can't keep yelling at me. And he's like, mm. I'm sorry, you're right. You know, and then I helped him with it. He ended up needing some, some pain medication. He was prescribed. We gave it to him. It was fine. Um, but that, you know, it's, you're in this job. It can be very easy to grow disgruntled over the difficult people you have to deal with day in and day out and kind of dehumanize them in a way to just make it through the day. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so I think it does take a lot of intentional effort and humility and, and asking God for help to say, help me remember that these people are all lost children of yours, you know? And, and I, and I just don't know how my actions may impact them. Hmm. Kevin, to wrap up, I kind of want to leave you with a a bit of an open-ended question. You had sent me an article from Vox called what the police really believe that's posted on our Facebook page. I encourage people to go to read that. You said that, you know, I agree with maybe some of it, but not all of it. Maybe that's an interview for another time. But I'd love to know just in the last like minute, minute and a half that we have left, like what else would you like to say or speak into with regards to this conversation? Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, with that Vox article, Vox is a more liberal uh, news source. I kind of like what I said earlier, just listening. I think it's important for us to listen critically to people who disagree with us. Um, as well as the people we may agree with, but, but try and get that whole picture because everything that's going on is really complicated right now. Um, but especially I would say for, for us as Christians, you know, not all of us are in law enforcement, not all of us are in government work, but we all have the spirit of God living within us. And Ephesians 2.10 says that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for beforehand. So I think something we all need to do is ask, <laughs> ask God, what good works have you planned for me to do? Mm-hmm. And in, in that uh, posture of humility and trust, humility saying, I actually don't know what's best. I don't know the right, you know, maybe the right role that I need to take. I may be in policymaking or, you know, but I don't know the right policies to enact. I don't maybe know what laws are just or unjust, but we have the living God inside of us who knows. Mm-hmm. And and then that trust to say, I know you love me, Jesus, and I know your heart breaks for this country more than mine ever will. So yeah. he cares more about everything that's going on, way more than we do. He has systemic issues he wants to deal with. He has personal issues he wants to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's hard, you know, because it takes a lot of listening and it takes a lot of going out there and making decisions that might not be the right ones. We have to take risks, but Hmm. we have the Holy spirit to empower us and he's eager to give us that power. 
And that's really good. Kevin, just to say it out loud, man, I'm super grateful for you and for your friendship and all the work that I know that you have done and continue to do. I love you like a brother, man. And I'm really, really grateful for you taking the time to join us on the show today. Love you too, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. We are at the home stretch, the final segment of the day. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to joining you tomorrow as well. Real quickly, before we dive into this last article, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. Uh, maybe we can promise shout outs if you subscribe, rate, yes. and review. We'd be happy to give you. Does that have any? Is that in any way appealing? Does that incentivize? I can't imagine. Maybe. Maybe it, it does. Would be, it would be appealing to me if I were listening. It would appeal to me, but I'm not. I'm not sure uh, how wide that demographic is. Well, let's just find out. If you uh, leave a review, we'll give you a shot on the show. And uh, right. we do a segment fairly regularly nowadays called "Some Good News," and uh, we get a lot of those stories from the Good News Network, which I highly recommend you check out. Goodnewsnetwork.org. They are wonderful. But our very own Dan Ehrman actually shared with us this article out of USA Today. It says, good news prevails. 100 positive things that happened in 2020 so far. And so we've taken the time as a challenge. We're going to get all 100 in in the <laughs> remaining seven minutes that we have here in this segment. No, there's just no way possible. What I thought we could do, Brian, nope. one, go read the whole article. It'll just it'll make you feel even just a little bit better about all the craziness in the world. That's on our Facebook page. But what we're going to do now is just pick a few at random that kind of uh, stood out to us to kind of end the show with just a little bit of positivity because you know what? Every once in a while, we just need it. So why don't you go ahead and kick us off, Brian? Yeah. And like you said, the one reason to read this article is because each of these has links to it. If you want to read the bigger stories of each of these, Uh, but I'm going to take the first one with, it's got a picture in here. Uh, her name is Jenny Stania, uh, 103-year-old grandma, beat COVID-19, and then celebrates with a Bud Light. So there's a picture of her in her hospital bed drinking a big blue Bud Light after at 103, she was able to beat COVID-19. Uh, these are the ones that I'm always excited about. Drive-in movie theaters made a comeback. Drive-in concerts are now a thing, yep. which is great news for those missing live music or those who don't like crowds anyway. I've I've been pretty excited to even see how many like churches have been utilizing drive-in theaters. That's that's been pretty interesting for sure. Yep. yep. Earlier in the pandemic, when there was no sports going around, uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning played golf with Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods in something called the Match, and they raised millions upon millions upon millions of dollars for COVID nineteen relief. And uh, the highlight of the match, Tom Brady holed out from like 130 yards away or something. He was the worst golfer of all of them. He holed <laughs> out. And then when he went to pick up the ball out of the uh, out of the hole, he ripped his pants. And so a lot of people not only laughed about that, but said it feels good to know someone like Tom Brady's just like the rest of us. <laughs> mm, I mean, I wouldn't quite go that far, but yeah, I see what you're getting yes. uh, this one, way. <laughs> this one is close to home because we currently have some uh, really aggressive cocky almost squirrels in our backyard uh, a squirrel mastered a ninja warrior obstacle course proving that squirrels are more amazing than we thought i would add an asterisk except for the ones in my backyard that are frightening my children every day but yeah that's uh oh, that's good. good that's some good news <laughs> yeah one up here restaurant shared their secret recipes so we could do them at home but then i like this one uh this opera 
Uh, and there's a picture of it in Barcelona. It says this opera performed to a beautiful audience of houseplants and then donated the plants to health care workers. So there's an overhead shot of the opera hall. The opera is going on, but all the seats are filled by houseplants. <laughs> so a couple of uh, music related things. One says Lady Gaga gave us a new album. This author says Dua Lipa single-handedly saved pop music. That might be uh, a little overreaching, I think. And then it says Carly Rae Jepsen did it again with her new album. I've not heard any of those records, just to say it out loud. So that is uh, conjecture. I'm just trusting the author here, but uh, I did did forget about some of that. Uh, People got creative about reimagined vacations. So Mm -hmm. you hear a lot about that going on. And here's one. I'm part of this. Americans rush to adopt and foster pets in need of amid the pandemic. Oh, wait, that's not me. We got a pet, but uh, we purchased it, not fostered. Uh, But it was amazing how many people uh, that I even know, my family included, got pets. Uh, And when we were looking at the pets, we called about fostering pets. And at that point, there were no pets available. So that was something that happened during the pandemic. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this in your house, Brian, but uh, it says puzzles and board games became cool again and offered a much needed yes. break from our screens. Uh, have you seen an uptick in the Fromm household? Uh, especially early in the pandemic, my oldest daughter, Madeline, and I did multiple puzzles. So, yes, we haven't right. done one in a couple of months here, but at the beginning, we did multiple puzzles for sure. My goodness. All right. Take the next one. Uh, when it comes to baking, we got creative by turning tiny pancakes into cereal. <laughs> I want to read that one. That's not bad. And uh, TikTok blew up and our boredom was cured. Well, at least some of our time during quarantine was filled with learning dances uh, and watching endless hours of these short videos. Ian, have you become, I know the president wants to get rid of it, but but over the pandemic, have you become a TikTok guy? No, no. How dare you even ask? <laughs> although, although there certainly have been days where I'm like, well, maybe <laughs> I, uh, I, I could be coerced. I don't know. I, it, I don't think. I don't think that's anything the world needs is an Ian Simpkins TikTok. Uh, other articles this is linked to. This dolphin tried befriending these dogs. This surfer oh. saved a stranded dog. Uh, Netflix's elaborate The Floor is Lava competition brought us back to imaginary game of our childhoods. That's pretty exciting. Uh, distilleries, both small and large around the country, use their resources to produce hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, going further down here, major companies such as 3M and Apple pooled resources or shifted production to make millions of masks to help keep people safe. Ford, GM, Tesla, and other automakers were able to make ventilators and other medical devices. So again, seeing these major companies uh, do things for uh, the good uh, of the nation was encouraging. A couple other things. Crayola launched a box of crayons with diverse skin colors for children to, quote, accurately color themselves into the world. I love that. Amazon introduced fun new boxes that can be turned into a cat fort or a robot costume. I'm not usually quick to give Amazon props, but uh, that's that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> uh, bike trails became a thing. Bird watching also became a big thing. Uh, museums got creative with reopening and Zoom flubs brought comedic relief. And they linked to the ABC reporter, Will Reeve, uh, the son of Christopher Reeve. Uh, who forgot to put on pants thinking he wouldn't be on camera that low. But yes, he was wearing what he claimed to be wearing athletic shorts and uh, he got caught. So the Zoom flub was something we had no idea about uh, five or six months ago, but now is part of our culture. Uh, somebody apparently completed a marathon on their front porch. 
Uh, oh, man, we talked about this briefly. <laughs> this might have been off air. The six-year-old boy that saved his little sister from an attacking dog. That was, that was a, unbelievable. That was a, remark- that was a remarkable story. Uh, Laura Dern won her first Oscar. Billie Eilish swept the Grammys. Gosh, that feels like forever ago, doesn't it? For uh, Alicia Keys, as a Grammy host, gave us a much-needed moment of comfort following the death of Kobe Bryant. My goodness. I forgot about a lot of these, to be honest. That's right. There's a story here about a toddler who found a way to have weekly playdates with his grandparents through a window, and the picture is is just the best. Uh, 12-year-old Kedron Bryant went viral for his powerful song about being a young black man in America, and out of that, he got a record deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a Friends reunion, finally. It's delayed because of the coronavirus, but you can still rewatch all the sitcom on HBO Max until then. Uh, I did not know this one. Eminem celebrated 12 years of sobriety. Miley Cyrus is sober, too. I did not know that. There was a bunch of actual uh, school school sitcom reunions. What was the other one? Parks and Rec was one of them, right? That's right. Uh, uh, 30 Rock. 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. 30 yeah. Rock. Right. There's a there's a bunch of good ones there. All right. We got uh, 10 seconds left. Last one, Brian. A principal surprised each of his 98 high school seniors with yard signs to make them feel special, even though their celebrations were canceled. That's the kind of the heart of what so many people did across our country. I, I love that story. And I, I, it's a pretty amazing list, by the way. The article is posted up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I encourage you to take a read. Add whatever ones maybe they forgot. Share it with a friend. And uh, it's been a riot being with you guys today. We hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.